If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 is where we're headed this morning as we continue our way through the Psalms during the summer. That song that we just sang, uh, God's kissing a guilty world in love, is very much like what we see in this psalm. Uh, two drastically different pictures of the world. Um, as you're turning to, to Psalm 36, I want to ask, when is the last time you went to the eye doctor? Uh, it's been a while for me, actually, a few years, but I have many memories of going as a child, sitting in that big, giant chair, and then uh, looking through the, the world's largest, most complicated set of binoculars that I had ever seen. Uh, that giant thing that they wheel towards you, right? Um, and as they adjust the lenses, you guys know how it goes? They, they, they twist them over and they say, better one, better two. One or two, right? It's like, it's just ingrained in me from a child. I can hear the eye doctor uh, almost singing that phrase, one or two, better one or two, right? The official name of this part of the eye exam is a refraction test, uh, where they're testing your, your eye and, and what you can see. And those big, complicated binoculars are called a foropter, in case you wanted to know. Uh, you can take that home with you today. Uh, sometimes, as the lenses were switched and I was offered one or two, it was hard to tell much of a difference at all between the two of them. But other times, it was absolutely obvious. Oh, definitely two. Let's stay there. Let's go that way, right? And hopefully, by the end of the exam and the test, you're able to see more clearly than you were at first. So Psalm 36 functions as a kind of refraction test for the soul. The psalmist pulls up a spiritual foropter and offers two vastly different ways of seeing. Two vastly different ways of being in the world. The psalm begins with one vision and then drastically changes without warning to something else. And then finally offers a prayer in the concluding final verses. And so as we read Psalm 36, I invite you to listen for language about eyes, sight, and seeing. Let us hear the word of God together. Psalm 36. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, 
reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies, your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O Lord, our God. How people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the opportunity to see more clearly. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So did you catch the language of seeing and sight throughout this psalm? scattered about? Did did you see the sharp contrast that it offers us? Better one, better two. One or two. The psalm opens with a grand announcement concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. Immediately, we are shown one way of seeing the world, one kind of sight or vision. And this becomes clear as the psalm continues by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. There's the language of seeing and sight. There's something a matter with the eyes. Their eyes don't fear God. And their eyes do flatter themselves. Now, the primary problem described here is not really that they sin. Although that is a problem to be dealt with. But rather, the primary problem that we see here is that they are blind to their sin. Right? Sinning is one thing, but sinning and not seeing is a problem that runs much deeper. Because you see, we we will sin. Uh, We have sinned. We all fail and fall and turn from God and harm others. But the question is, do we detect our sin? And do we hate our sin? This is the essence of repentance, that word that begins the first sermons of Jesus and John the Baptist. Repent, 
for the kingdom of God has come near. Repentance has to do with detecting our sin and hating it. So turning away from it. But that's precisely what the wicked, as this psalm describes, are not able to do. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The wicked are those whose spiritual eyes have become blind to sin. And not just any sin, but their own sin. They may, in fact, be very skilled in identifying the sins of others. They may even point to the sins of others as a way to justify their own sin, right? But in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The early teachers and theologians of the church had a phrase to describe the essential problem of sinful humanity. It's this Latin phrase, incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se. It means curved in on oneself. Curved in on oneself. This is the essential problem of humanity. That we are curved in on ourselves. So sin, in this sense, is not merely a problem of action, but a problem of posture. What is our posture? Sin has warped people into a posture that is curved inward. One of the most iconic depictions of this posture is Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, right? Of course, I'll bring Lord of the Rings into it, right? Gollum, this character, if you're familiar with the story, used to be not unlike a person uh, who who lived and, and stood upright and so on. But over time, his obsession with the ring and his dwelling in dark caves warps him into this creature that is curved in on himself. And that's a bit like what we see as the wicked person in Psalm 36. There's someone who's so closed in on themselves that they cannot see their own sin. They don't only have a few blind spots, their entire field of vision is a blind spot, blocked by sin and self. It's like the old joke about one fish swimming past another one and asking the question, hey, how's the water? And the other fish goes, what's water? Right? Uh, Because water is everywhere, the fish is unaware of it. It's, to change the metaphor, the air he breathes. Well, for a fish, that's how it works, right? This is what sin is like to the wicked person. And because of that, sin permeates every breath that they breathe. 
The psalm continues to describe this. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. And then it zooms into the most personal and private space. This person is alone. And it says, even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong, right? So maybe this person's putting up a a good front during the day, but at night, when they're by themselves, evil dwells within. And this is in contrast with the righteous person described in Psalm 1 as someone whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on this day and night, right? But here in Psalm 36, we have someone who is committing sin and at night plotting evil. So, again, this certainly refers to someone who is knowingly scheming up evil plots. But it also refers to anyone who allows sin to permeate their being. It refers not only to those who plot revenge, but also those who harbor bitterness. Not only those who deceive others, but also those who go on deceiving themselves about who they really are. Right? It's anyone who's become curved inward and blinded to their own sin. And if we're honest, most of us fall into this at some point or another. So what, what's the remedy to this situation? Right? How, how does the wicked person move beyond this spiritual blindness? Many of us have been taught to just stop sinning, just stop being so wicked, right? It's been taught to us over and over again through long lists of rules to keep or commands to follow, as if spiritual life were merely a matter of, as Dallas Willard puts it, sin management. Let's just manage our sin. Let's keep it as tidy as possible. Let's stay away from those things and do these other things instead. But here's the problem. A person in the dark being told to run from the dark merely becomes a person running through the dark. See what I mean? We don't escape darkness by running away from darkness. You can only get out of the dark by turning toward the light. And so being told, stop sinning, is really not that helpful. Because at worst, we'll fail at it, and at best, we'll succeed at it and become full of ourselves, right? And we're still left in the darkness. But the only way to move out of the dark is to move toward the light. And that's exactly where this psalm goes, In verse 5, our psalmist eye doctor flips the lens from 1 to 2. And what we see could hardly be more different. There could hardly be a starker contrast. Suddenly, out of nowhere, 
The psalm erupts. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In these verses we shift from seeing the wicked who is consumed with sin to seeing God who is overflowing with love. And it's important to note that the psalm does not shift from describing the wicked person and their evil deeds to describing the righteous person and their good deeds. This is a temptation that we all have, right? Instead of being a bad person, we set our sights on becoming a good person. That is just as much a recipe for disaster. Because the good person often is just as consumed with their own self-flattery as the evil person. The answer is not trying harder and doing better, but rather the answer is looking to God and being transformed by God. So the psalm turns from the wicked person to the loving God. And there's several differences that are immediately apparent. Right? First, the description of the wicked person is shrouded in darkness as they plot evil at night. But the description of God is flooded with light as it culminates in that beautiful phrase, in your light, we see light. And then next, while the wicked person is absorbed with themselves, here we see God constantly and generously caring for others. You, Lord, preserve people and animals. Right? The wicked take life for themselves, but God gives life. Another difference that stands out to me as I look at this is simply the scale. Right? The world of the wicked person is so small. It's set only on themselves. And the most concrete image that we're given in the psalm is a picture of that wicked person on their bed at night. Their whole world is summed up in that image of lonely darkness. But, in contrast, the description of God is massive. It embraces the whole world, all creation. He looks to the heavens, the skies, the highest mountain, the great deeps, right? It's this massive world. The world of the wicked is so small, but the world of God is endless. 
I shared this quote in the email this week, but I want to share it here again. C.S. Lewis wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. The psalmist begins by showing us this small, miserable life of wickedness and then turning to the big, beautiful life brimming with the love, faithfulness, righteousness, and justice of God. It's as if he is the eye doctor asking, better one, better two. One or two. And which are you drawn to? See, our spiritual appetites have become too small. We're satisfied with a little bit of church here, a couple righteous deeds there. But there is a whole world brimming with God that we are invited to feast upon every moment of every day. Our spiritual appetites are too small, and we are far too easily pleased. There's so much, so much more. And so the psalm continues and describes this, saying that people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast upon the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delight. Just one beautiful image after another, after another. These are images of protection and provision. We see God like a mother bird keeping us in the shadow of his wings, feeding us as we open up our beaks from his nest. These are images of home, God making a place for us to belong and to be at rest. And more specifically, these are images of the house of God. Poetically, in many ways, uh, these lines point to the temple where God dwells and where God's people gather for worship. The temple or the tabernacle was the place where sacrifices were made and then feasts were held. It was very much a place to feast on the abundance of your house, as the psalmist describes. And though there were no literal rivers running through the temple or tabernacle, it was often theologically understood to be like a new Eden, a new kind of Eden in the middle of earth, that garden where rivers flowed north and south and east and west and all directions from. 
And then the prophet Ezekiel would have this vision of the temple and rivers flowing out of it in all kinds of directions, right? So the temple is known as a place to drink from your river of delights. The psalmist is poetically exploring this place of worship. But even more than feasting and drinking, at the very heart of the temple, there was within the area called the Holy of Holies, this thing that was known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, it's described in the book of Exodus and and other places. It was this chest with a lid on the top of it, which uh, there were two cherubim, these angelic beings, with their wings outstretched. Here's a, a kind of illustration of what it might have looked like. Or if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, then that's another uh, image you might uh, consider, right? But it's this box with a lid with these angelic beings with wings on the top of it. This ark was understood to represent the throne of God. It's the place where God sits and rules over his people. And so the lid of the ark was often referred to as the mercy seat. It's the place where people come in touch with God's mercy and love. And so to come to God, to rest in God's mercy, is to take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Perhaps poetically referring to these very wings in the midst of the temple. The wings of the ark, which represents the very presence of God. And so the psalmist poetically describes all of this, this place of worship and delight and being with God, this expansive world of God's love, the tender care that God gives to all creation, the protection and provision of God and worshiping in his presence under his wings in the temple. And then, finally, concludes in this section, with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now here's where I want to pause for a moment and draw some connections. Because as we read through the Psalms, we often pause to, to wonder, where do we see Jesus in the midst of this? How do these words bring us to, point us to Jesus? And there are so many ways in this psalm. Much of the language and imagery of this psalm is taken up in the Gospel of John, which opens with the image of Jesus as the Word, saying, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Right? With you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. That life and light is Jesus. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The psalm describes God's love being like the heavens. 
the skies, the mountains, the depths. And I wonder if Paul might have had this in mind when he prayed for the Ephesians to, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, right? Jesus is is the source of that great love of God. Perhaps Paul had this in mind as he wrote these words and prayed this prayer. Perhaps he was praying Psalm 36 over the church in Ephesus. But I do know that Paul did have this psalm in mind in Romans 3, where he was describing the sinfulness of humanity. Uh, Beginning in verse 10, he strings together a long list of quotes from the Old Testament, beginning, there is no one righteous, not even one. And he goes on and on to describe how everyone in all creation has fallen and is sinful. And he concludes this long list of quotations with a quote from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But then, as Paul continues, he makes the very same turn that the psalm does. As he continues in Romans chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? We all fall into that curved in on ourselves wicked people. They are but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And then he says this about Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness to to his people. I'll pause there. Jesus Christ is that mercy seat. Jesus is that place where God's presence dwells. Jesus is the one under whose wings we dwell. He is the one who brings us healing and forgiveness and restoration. It's because of him that God has passed over sins previously committed And God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the place where we are transformed. And so the psalm begins with this picture of being curved in on ourselves. Unable to see light, unable to see God, unable to see our own sin. And then suddenly the psalmist shifts to show us the wondering, dazzling beauty of God's love and faithfulness, justice and righteousness. And he concludes with a simple prayer. Continue your love 
to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. And then goes on to look back at the wicked one. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. And so there's this fallen picture, but then there's also the upright picture. Jesus is the one that moves us from being curved in to straightened out. This this psalm is an invitation for us to, to change our posture, to be changed from a posture of curved in and self-consumed to upright, looking out at the vastness of God's world, the unending space of God's love. That's where our posture is meant to be. We were created to be upright, eyes on God and toward one another. And that is the invitation of this psalm. And Jesus is the one who shows us that, but he's also the one who transforms us into that. And so may we continue worshiping Jesus, who shows us the faithful love of God, forgiving our transgressions and sins, and making us into his people. Amen.